Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham SC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to do a preview of Sunday's visit of Arsenal to Craven Cottage. The league leaders looking to extend or at least maintain their lead at the top of the Premier League. Can Fulham cause a roadblock in their charge towards their first title in nearly 20 years? We'll do the final word, if we have to, on Monday's defeat at Brentford. We'll also be discussing International Women's Day and the Fulham Lilies, checking in on their progress and what's been an incredible debut season for them. We'll have your questions and this will catch on at the end as ever. It's not the regular Thursday club today, but I am joined by Jack Collins. Hello. Hello, Sammy. How you doing, mate? All well here. Thank you for having me as ever. Peter Rutzler not here today, but I'm delighted to be joined by the founder of the Fulham Lilies, Sarah Keeg. Sarah, how you doing? I'm good, Sammy. How's you? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Thanks for coming on for the full pod. We were going to get you on for a bit. Then we thought, let's get Sarah on for the whole pod. Um, so, yeah, thanks to thanks for stepping into the Thursday Club nonsense. No, thank you. Honoured to be here, absolutely. Oh, well, it's uh, it's great to have you. We'll discuss all of the stuff that Fulham and Lilies are doing in part two. But first of all, um, let's just have a, a small therapy session after Monday, if we uh, if we have to. Um, Jack, uh, I saw you at halftime. We were quite buoyant at halftime because we just got that equaliser um, through, through Manor Solomon. And I remember th- feeling quite hopeful about the second half here we go we've got ourselves back into the game and yeah I didn't see you at full time I think we all scuttled off as quickly as we could so yeah your overall thoughts on uh, on Monday I didn't scuttle off that quickly at all although I do live 10 minutes around the corner so that probably helps I, I, I managed to walk home which was which was quite something it's the first time I think I've ever done that from a game but yeah I mean it's just incredibly disappointing I, I think that buoyancy at half time came from the idea that Fulham weren't great, obviously had a bad start to the half, grew into it a little bit and had a, a good 20-minute spell. But it's kind of rare, and I, I thought this a half-time against Wolves. It's rare this season that we've had two poor halves on the spin. We, you know, There have been moments mm. where we've had bad halves in games. There have been moments where we, we've struggled in games. But we've tended to kind of bounce back from those. And once we've got our foot on, on the pulse and, and got into our rhythm, it, it did feel like Fulham were, you know, had the ability to go on. And, and then the second half started so badly as well that I think it kind of drained all the momentum out of what was going on. Obviously a disappointing evening. Um, and you look at it and you think, it, in so many ways, I wasn't angry. Normally after a derby defeat, I'm really angry and I feel really pent up and everything. I think partly because it was on a Monday night uh, and therefore the kind of way of the weekend is, is, is already gone. You're into the into the week ahead. And partly because ultimately we were beaten by a better team. And it hurts to say that, obviously, considering it's that lot up the road. But we didn't deserve anything out of Monday night. And I think you can point to some brutal refereeing decisions. You'd argue for both sides because much as I think that Ivan Tony's challenge should have been looked at and the penalty was soft, I think we were incredibly lucky to have 11 men on the pitch at the end of the first half. So you look at some of the decisions that were made and and the referee I thought was particularly whistle happy, which isn't ideal in a derby because you want there to be that element of physicality and, and, and kind of nouse about it that you can let the game flow and there are going to be these challenges that fly in the fact that it was so broken up I felt didn't really help Fulham and kind of help 
Brentford's game in a little bit more because what we've seen is, you know, those long throws, those quick free kicks, we were getting caught up by the same things over and over again. And so you look at all of that, but ultimately I thought Fulham looked jaded. I thought we we looked tired. And yes, Joao Pellini is a massive miss in the middle, obviously. And I think everybody looked worse because he wasn't there. But the fact that we had six days off and people will point to the fact that Brentford had 16 days off, fine. I'm not worried about Brentford. We don't have to play them again until the end of the season. I'm worried about Fulham. And I'm worried about the fact that after six days off, we looked that tired in a game and, and weren't able to raise the energy levels to what we needed to do. Are we running out of steam a little bit? Is that element of, of fatigue creeping in? We've talked about Andreas Pereira and his performances of late have dropped off a little bit. Obviously still wonderful from a dead ball. But you look at it and you think, is that kind of in-game performance partly because of the fact that he didn't really get a summer because of the way that the transition came from the Brazilian league into this league. I think it's something like 54 games in 11 months he's now played at the top level. Yes, obviously he got a World Cup break, but I do think we're starting to see a little bit of, of that tiredness creep in and pay, perhaps that's the issue with, with the squad depth that we have and not bringing in that extra centre midfielder that maybe some of us had hoped for in January. It just looks a little bit light out there and we look a little bit dead on our feet and that's a slight concern, I think. Uh, Sarah, do you think it was uh, Fulham's weakest performance of the season? I mean, there's a couple of contenders up there, but um, yeah, this one was particularly, maybe it's just more painful because it's Brentford. Is that the case? Actually, it, we wouldn't have maybe been as bothered if it wasn't them. Uh, yeah, for, for me, I definitely think that because with a derby, you expect the players to know the relevance, to know the importance, and you expect them to be up for it from the start. And, you know, we had that atmosphere, we had that energy when we played the Chelsea games and at the previous Brentford game at home. But this, I think maybe because they just, we were on the back foot from the start. So, you know, they came out as all guns blazing and, you know, what it was, they'd had like two or three shots before they scored in the sixth minute that Leno had made a couple of good saves. So I think from then on, we we were sort of like, where, where's the grit? Where's the, you know, the fight that sort of Jack was alluding to? It's a derby. There should be tackles flying. We should be going hell for leather. And and I agree with Jack. It was the thing that your parents used to say to you, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. And I think that was the thing. I was just really disappointed that the players didn't seem to to have the the energy that you would expect if they're playing in a in a derby and for me the third goal um the way that um uh, chadder went past robinson no one's really done that this season against robinson and yeah, okay it could be because he you know he's he's a good player but it could for my mind i looked at robinson and i thought you look knackered you know you look absolutely shattered um, when he was going down that wing. So, yeah, it, it was, um, I was, I was more disappointed and I think it is because it's Brentford and I just expected more from the team. But, yeah, I mean, with Polinio as well, it, it shows when he didn't play the last time, we got beat 4-0 against Newcastle and uh, now this result as well. So uh, it is a worry that we're now beginning to rely on him so much. Yeah, particularly as we've got still got one more game uh, to play without him. I mean, Jack, it doesn't quite feel right that Fulham should be this knackered. I know that we had that replay at Sunderland that we really could have done without. Um, we've had a few more cup games than sides like Brentford. But 
It's not like we've been playing in Europe every week. And as you mentioned earlier, we had a World Cup break where a lot of this squad had six weeks off, basically, um, in the middle of the season. So I'm not 100% sure why we should be this tired. Well, I, I think there's something in in the idea that this side hasn't rotated very much. And, you know, you look at the team that's played pretty much all all the time of late. I think it's nine have played in nine of the, this team have, have played in each of the 10 games since World, the World Cup. And I think Peter wrote this on The Athletic, you know, after this game. And, you know, nine, nine have played in each of the 10 games since the World Cup. This is it. And Anthony Robinson has played in nine of the nine of those 10 games. So 10 of the 10 players have played in nine plus of our games since the World Cup break. And the games have come thick and fast. And, you know, some of the players, and yes, you can allude to Pereira there, fine. And I think his circumstances are different in, in the fact that obviously he's come straight from Brazil and there's no real break between seasons. Robinson, it's easy to forget, went to the World Cup and played basically every single minute. And the way that Robinson operates, especially at full throttle, is you know, something that is going to create a level, I think, at some point of, of burnout. And the fact that Levin Kazawa has, has got injured and is going to miss what seems like the rest of the season feels like a massive blow in the fact that you now can't rotate Anthony Robinson out for the FA Cup games, fine. Or, or even just for the last 20 minutes of games where Fulham are comfortable, just being able to make those little changes to give people the slight breather, a full pelt, especially someone who plays as a high-octane style as Anthony Robinson, I think it, it, it's just kind of one of those things. Now, Kevin Sharder is incredibly fast. I think that's probably worth pointing out. Well, it's a fair bit of him at Freiburg. And he is very raw, but very fast. And he was able to just get the better of him. But I think more than more than the kind of getting around the outside of him, it was the ease with which he held him off. Sarah, I think for me that I was like, okay, that's a man who just hasn't got the like body strength to get back into this one. But there were moments here where, you know, Harry Wilson, who'd just come on at one point, burst through the middle and was caught by Rico Henry, who'd been playing and bombing forward from left back for them since the first minute. And, and I think there are moments like that where Fulham just didn't feel quite at the races. And that's not really to dig out Harry Wilson. I think coming on in those kind of games, especially in those circumstances, is never an easy task. But it's kind of one of those where it just felt like they wanted it more than us. And I think that's probably not necessarily the actual truth of the matter. But that was the way it displayed itself upon the pitch, I think. And, you know, talking to Brentford fans afterwards, they were relatively complimentary of us, which I thought was quite weird, considering I thought that was one of our worst performances this season. They, you know, they were very much like, these are two teams, not miles off each other. We had the better of you today. You had the better of us at the, at the cottage. And that's kind of the, you know, the, the kind of conclusion that they came to. Five all, obviously, on aggregate across the two games. Maybe that's why it didn't, hurt quite as much or, or why it didn't why the anger wasn't there afterwards but I think just generally it was one of those games that you look at and you go none of the things kind of fitted in with how we were going to work and it's just a game to put behind us and ultimately hopefully by the time the next time we travel to Legoland comes around we we will have more in the tank and and more kind of ability to actually make a real game of it because I thought that we were relatively easily brushed aside at points. Yeah, let's look ahead then um, to Arsenal on Sunday. And Sarah, it might be a bit of a blessing in disguise that our next two matches, both Arsenal and Manchester United in the Cup, we will have the upper hand in terms of recovery time. So Arsenal uh, are away at Sporting on Thursday. So that's why the game is on Sunday in the Europa League. Then the following 
game against Manchester United, they'll have been away at Real Betis on a Thursday. Uh, Jack is definitely hoping for a Manchester United double uh, in those uh, in those three days for uh, for his beloved Betis and also, of course, Fulham. Um, I mean, this is an incredibly difficult game, and an Arsenal recently have just been this side that whilst early in the season, I felt like they were blowing sides away. They've been just incredible the way they are finding ways to win games. The Villa game, the way they came back late, and then the Bournemouth game on Saturday, they were so dead and buried at 2-0. I was thinking, wow, even if you got a draw out of this, it would be impressive to win it like they did in the 97th minute with that goal. Um, This is an Arsenal side that's going to be coming to Craven Cottage absolutely flying with confidence. Yeah, definitely. And what I like, I mean, I was talking to someone and I was sort of comparing what Arsenal are going through this season very much to what we as Fulham supporters are going through. They are overachieving. They haven't been in Champions League for six years. And I think as an Arsenal supporter, you'd just be looking at getting Champions League this season. But they are very much there in the fight for the Premier League. And I think what I like about what they're doing this season is that it's a very, very young team, but there just seems to be this connection between the team and the supporters. And they're not taking it for granted. There are other clubs, Man Cities and in the past Man United, and you just very much feel that they, they think it's their right to be in that position. Whereas with Arsenal, it's very much the feeling that we're getting in that they are overachieving, but they're just going along for the ride. And if they get it, that's great. But as long as they get Champions League, they'll be happy with us, similar to us. It's great that we're in the position we're in, but ultimately we just wanted to stay in the Premier League this season at, at the start of it. So I think it is going to be a tough game, but they've conceded, I think it's something like 12 in the last eight games. They did go 2-0 down against Bournemouth. It was a fantastic comeback, and and that's the comeback that teams that are champions will do. But, you know, they they are shipping a few goals. So if if we can get ahead of them, and then we've got the defence now, and just defend for our lives, Mm. who who knows? I mean, one massive boost, Jack, whilst, of course, Fulham missing Jao Polina is absolutely huge. Arsenal have a bit of an injury crisis up front. So Gabriel Jesus has been a long-term injury and it's unlikely that either Enketia or Trossard will be available for Sunday's game. There's a chance that they could be, but it's looking more like they need another week before they're going to be back. Um, that's a big boost really there's no I mean there's still plenty of players in this side that can score goals but not having really a recognized center forward and Trossard was not really that either but he was doing a job there up front whilst Nketiah was injured is good sign for uh for Fulham yeah I mean look you, you take what you can get right I think yeah. against a team that are, are playing this well I think what's impressed me most about Arsenal and perhaps this kind of feeds into that is the ability to get the job done with players who you weren't expecting to get the job done. And obviously the most example, obvious example of this at the weekend is, is Reese Nelson coming on and scoring the winner after what featuring in five games this season, he's barely, barely featured for Arsenal. You'd imagine that if everybody was fit, Reese Nelson wouldn't even be in the match day squad. And yet he's coming on and making important contributions. I think what Sarah said, was important there because 
Arsenal have been chipping goals. And unlike Villa and unlike Bournemouth, if Fulham went 2-0 up, I'd back us to hold out. I, I think that we, we've seen this Fulham side show much more resilience this season than we've seen in previous Premier League campaigns. Yes, obviously there was the result of the Emirates where we were 1-0 up and end up losing 2-1. But I think that's a very different kettle of fish to being in a two-goal advantage against this Arsenal side. And, and look, that's not to take away from them. But I think when you're looking at Ben White popping up with goals, I think when you're looking at Thomas Partey coming up with goals and Reese Nelson coming up with goals in order to keep Pete Bournemouth, there's strengths and weaknesses there. One is that the star players don't have to perform every week because there are backups coming in and making differences. But two is that Bournemouth found a way, and I would say this is a Bournemouth side that are far inferior to where we're at right now in the Premier League, to find a way to not only score twice, but also to keep some of these star players at bay for a lot of a lot of this game. You know, Mikhail Saka, I think, was everybody's fantasy Premier League captain at the weekend. And yet we saw a, a performance that was relatively dulled, I think. Martin Erdegaard failed to shine in the way that he has in recent weeks. Gabriel Martinelli. There were lots of things about this performance that I was kind of looking at and being like, yes, you pulled a win out of the bag here, but also there is an element of uncertainty around what's going to happen in, in, in the games going forward if these players remain out. And the one thing I would point to just as a kind of closer is the fact that Arsenal are currently in a state where everything feels really emotional and the the outpour of kind of relief and joy when that third goal went in at the Emirates was something to behold and something wonderful in football. It's one of the things I absolutely love, that kind of sense of, oh, it's going to be our year. But James McNicholas wrote a really interesting piece about this and how emotion is a really good thing if it's controlled in the right way. But actually, if it leads to players starting to feel like they're destined for things and things go wrong, then it can be a negative emotion as well. And, and I point to the Liverpool side under Brendan Rodgers, I think, which is maybe not the fairest example, but it's a, a side that hadn't won the league for a long period of time and felt like their time had come because of the way that other things fell around them. And ultimately, we saw that side start to, you know, to beat Man City 3-2, and, and they went three points clear, I think, at the top of the league with three games to go. I know we're not quite at that point, but they felt like it was kind of destiny. And then suddenly it all fell apart. And I do wonder if there's an element of after the Reese Nelson goal last weekend, Arsenal feeling like this is it, it's done. And I, I completely agree with you, Sarah. My Arsenal friends throughout the year have been like, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Last weekend when Nelson scored the winner, they were like, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're winning the league. And I wonder if that is the moment where actually things could come crashing down. The only kind of caveat to this is if I if we had Sharpalina playing in this game, I'd fancy it. The fact that we don't, means that I just have a feeling that maybe this isn't going to be us that brings the narrative crashing to a halt. No, indeed. And Jack, I'd be interested to know what impact you think that sporting game, away at sporting, is not a game that's ideal to play three days before no. uh, Fulham away. Um, you'll obviously have know much more about um, sporting's qualities that, than I do. Um, but it's interesting with Arsenal because if I was Arteta, I mean, if you asked any Arsenal fan, what would you rather win? The game against sporting, the game against Fulham is not even up for debate. It's obviously they want to, they, they'd probably happily throw the Europa League right now if it even meant like another 5% more likely chance of, uh, of winning the league. So I'm interested to how Arsenal actually approached the Europa because, I mean, they'll want a European trophy who wouldn't but when the big prize is there then you surely got to at some point prioritize one over the other 
Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to your point about injuries because I would have imagined that this Arsenal side would have had a 7-8 player rotation in it ahead of the, the you know the game against Fulham. I think in this sporting game, you're, you're expecting to see the likes of Matt Turner in goal. You're expecting to see Emil Smith-Rowe get some minutes as he comes back from injury. You're expecting to see Kieran Tierney start ahead of Zinchenko at a left-back. You're expecting to see Tommy Yasu start ahead of Ben White, although he obviously did that at the weekend. Rob Holding, maybe Jakob Kivior, who came in in, in January. I'd, I'd imagine there's going to be a lot of changes. But you look at the forward line and you actually think, well, how many changes can you physically make if Jesus is out, if... You know, we're talking about the fact that Nketi is out. We're talking about the fact that Trossard's out. There's a lot kind of here. You go, well, Reese Nelson probably starts his game on one side. You'd imagine Emil Smith-Rowe starts uh, at some point. But there isn't all that many options, especially considering that Marquinhos went out on loan to Norwich. A couple of the other players went, went out on loan in January. It kind of feels like there's going to have to be a sense of of some of this first team starting and probably playing 90 minutes in the whole mix of it. And, and that could be interesting depending on, on, on how, how many of them have to play because of injury issues. I think the whole defence will change. I think maybe one of the midfield will stay and, and the other two will rotate. I think Fabio Vieira will come in for Martin Erdegaard, for example. But in the front line, you know, I actually do think we might end up seeing something pretty similar to what we'll see at the weekend and what impact that has on this Arsenal side on Sunday, I think it is yet to be seen, but it could could make all the difference after such a quick turnaround. I bet they wish they had Balogun on, uh, not out on loan at Rem, who is uh, absolutely banging them in in the French League. They could definitely have done with him up front uh, for, for these games. But uh, alas, he is uh, very much the property of Will Still, uh, the, the football manager, <laughs> a wonder man. Um, Sarah, from a Fulham perspective, um, do you think there's going to be any changes to, to what we do? I mean, kind of everything, I guess maybe for, maybe for me is whether Bobby gets back in at, at right wing. I don't know if the Willian move for him to go to right wing was the, was the right thing. Can Mana Solomon start two games in five days, especially after he started the Leeds game as well? Maybe Mana Solomon drops back down to the bench, but elsewhere I can't really see too many changes. Yeah, and it, it goes back to what Jack was saying earlier about the size of our squad. Um, you know, you, you've just sort of mentioned all the uh, Arsenal injuries and how they're struggling. We're in a similar position, not necessarily through injuries. Or obviously, we've got um, knee skins and, and TC, but because we don't have the depth of squad. <clears throat> and I think um, Manor, tactically, Brentford just got it spot on with him. Um, on Monday night because, you know, they shut him down and they did what the two previous teams hadn't done. You know, when he cut inside, they were on him. They were straight on him. So, you know, they they really tactically, I thought, played a, a good game against Manor. So maybe it is better for him, both fitness-wise and for the way that he plays. He does come on um, as a substitute and, he you know, and make that impact that he has made rather than playing him from the start. Um, Polinia is going to be a big miss um, and obviously um, Lukic still finding his feet possibly not not fully fit um, from when he's come in um, Mitro he looked a little bit off the boil as well um, I mean I think it was something like the 88th minute before 
we had a shot on Monday night. Uh, sorry, the, the keeper had to save. And that was from Mitro. And that was sort of Mitro's first real um, intent in the game. So I, I, I don't think that there are many options available to us. But I would like to see William starting on the left and Bobby starting as well. And then, as I say, you know, looking at bringing Manor on to, to do what he does best and just grab a worldie. It, it's also good to see he's not a one-trip pony and that he can score tap-ins. They don't all have to be world-class goals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jack, there's an interesting point that, um, speaking of world-class goals, I'm, I'm really glad you just mentioned that, Sarah, that actually... Earlier in the season, and maybe last season as well, remember we had the conversation so many times about how I couldn't remember Fulham scoring worldies. We were just scoring well-constructed goals, often from the byline, cutbacks and stuff. We, the February goal of the month compilation that Fulham put out, which was sensational and was really enjoyable, did actually make me realise that we haven't scored that many normal goals in a while. I'd say maybe Manuel Solomon's goal against uh, Forrest was the only kind of well-constructed move. And even that was kind of because Forrest were not that well-numbered at, at the back. That is actually maybe something to be slightly concerned about, really, that it does seem to take a world-class strike. And even though Manuel's was a tap-in on Monday, it came about because Andreas Pereira did something ridiculous from the free kick. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is a really fair point. I mean... The Brighton goal, maybe. I mean, obviously it's on the counter, but it's still well-constructed is probably how I, I, I would argue it. I'd say, um, I say it's a halfway. I mean, it wasn't because brilliant Fulham constant play overloading a, a side. It was a breakaway goal and a very well-constructed one. But yes, I think you're kind of semi-right on that one. I, I don't think that that's necessarily a problem when we're about to play Arsenal. Because I'd imagine that, you know, a lot of Fulham's attacks here are going to come from trying to, to break quickly and, and transition at speed. So it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. And, and that's maybe the argument for not dropping Manor Solomon, because actually what he offers in those transitional phases is probably probably more than what William would argue. Um, and, and actually, for me, that's maybe the move I would make. I would drop William for Bobby in this game. Gives you that kind of hardworking vibe in terms of cutting, getting back and, and dealing with Alexander Zinchenko, who's going to be an issue because he's excellent. Mm. Um, but, but more than that, I think just getting wingers who, who are able to transition at speed and who are able to make those runs. And we talked a little bit, and there was a little bit of it in the Leeds game with Alexander Mitrovic being able to, you know, first time, hit those balls over the top that were able to find the wingers and suddenly Fulham were, were breaking into space. We haven't seen all that that much this season, partly because you know we've been very, very good and partly because we also haven't needed to hit those spaces in behind because we've been far more of an intricate team, I think, generally across the course of, of this campaign. But if we are going to play like that, I'd like to see a little bit more than that. I'm with you, Sarah, on Mitra. I thought he was okay first half. I thought his hold-up play was pretty good. But as he got more and more frustrated with it and more and more frustrated with not being in the box, I think that kind of fatigue started to show with him as well. Again, the questions of of, of his complete fitness and whether he's completely back to, to full health is 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 a different one. And perhaps we, we overblow this. Perhaps most players are, are playing with slightly less than full health at, at all times because of the nature of, of a full Premier League season. But... It did feel like when the going kind of not got tough, that's that's the wrong thing to level at him. But when when it started not to fall for Fulham, that the frustration started to boil over and get the better of him. And there were there are 
you know, numerous moments where hands were thrown up in the air instead of trying to win the ball back, et cetera, et cetera, which I think probably frustrated the crowd as much as he was frustrated himself. So I think he starts again. Uh, I'd, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't. Um, but there, there definitely is a question mark there over whether it's okay to to pull him. And look, obviously, Carlos Vinicius scored at, at the weekend or on Monday night. And that's fine. But more than that, I think when he came on, it was a bit like the change of formation threw us out for a little bit. And eventually, it maybe came good a little bit more than it did. But that was more due to positioning and, and Andreas having a few speculative strikes and anything else. I wonder if we might have been better just pulling Mitro at that point, although I can understand why Silva didn't do that. So it's going to be interesting to see how we how we play. But I would bring Bobby in, Bobby in for William, I think, of, of the back of what we saw at the weekend. Yeah. Um, one uh, interesting thing for this game is there is no fullback cover. Bobby is pretty much the only fullback cover because uh, Cedric Suarez won't be uh, eligible to play against his uh, parent club. Levin Kazawa is injured. So um, we are thin on the ground. Kenny Tete and Anthony Robinson are going to need to do the full 90 in this one. Else, I guess you could put Bobby back there. Obviously, Tim Ream can play left back if necessary, but we're really... Uh, uh, we're really clutching at straws if uh, if either Robinson or Kenny Tete have any issues. So fingers crossed uh, we can uh, get away with it uh, for a week. Right, we're going to take a break there. Afterwards, we're going to discuss everything Fulham Lilies. This is an advertisement for BetterHelp, a portal for finding online therapy. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Would you read more Fulham transfer rumours? Well, whatever it is, one thing that many of us have in common is wishing that we had more time. And therapy can be a place to help you work through what matters to you so you can have more time to do it. Therapy is great for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the very best version of yourself. It's not just for those who experience major trauma. And if that's something you're looking for, that's where BetterHelp can come in. BetterHelp is entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. They'll match you with a UK mental health professional with a wide variety of expertise. There's no referral needed and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, giving you complete control over the whole experience. And Fulhamish listeners can get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish. That's betterhelp.com slash Fulhamish to get 10% off your first month. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. It is Sammy here with Jack Collins and Sarah Key from the Fulham Lilies. Thank you to everyone who continues to support Fulhamish in the Fulhamish community, uh, backing all of our podcasts, our videos and our articles. Uh, it is hugely appreciated. It's a way of financially supporting Fulhamish if you uh, want to do so and are able to. There is a link in the description of this podcast or you can find all the details on the Fulhamish website. As a thank you, you get access to our Fulhamish community, which is uh, three group chats on Telegram. Um, they're absolutely fantastic. A great way of staying in touch with the club. Um, a nice little bonus to everyone uh, that supports us. Um, but as I always say, if you can't or don't want to, that's not a problem. We try and keep everything free for you to listen or watch or read uh, should you want to. Right, let's discuss uh, the Fulham Lilies. And Sarah, um, it's crazy to think that it's only been about seven or eight months since you guys formed it feels like you were very much like part of the fabric or part of the furniture of um of the football club now obviously you've done everything to kind of promote um women um 
getting involved with everything Fulham, whether that be kind of supporting or running initiatives. Um, it's been such an incredible um, eight months of development um, that, that you, I know, have been uh, personally hugely involved with since the start. So um, before we come on to the stuff that's uh, centred around International Women's Day that's going on at the Arsenal game, just interested to find out a bit more from you um, how it's going, because it seems from the outside to just be growing and growing and growing. Yeah, it's we're all quite overwhelmed. We, we sort of very much when we have our monthly meetings and we go through what we've achieved, they're very much pinch us moments because um, there are there are 10 of us on the board and um, we never expected to, to sort of be where we are now. The support that we've had from Fulham supporters and also from the club itself has, has been absolutely brilliant. And we have um, had meetups um, before games where people have come up to us and said, I've always wanted to go to a match, but never thought about coming on my own. And no one else I know is really interested. So they said, but I saw that you do these meetups. So I bought a ticket and they come along, they chat to us. We've had fathers bring their daughters saying, um, you know, I've been bring there was one guy who said I've been bringing my daughter since she was 6 she's now 12 but she's never actually met other women to sit and talk football with and he, she loved it she she sat there she chatted for ages and um you know she now has sort of said can you help us to get a football team a, a girls football team at my school so we've put her in touch with the Fulham Foundation and it's something that the Fulham Foundation are, are looking at helping her with so it's just all these little initiatives that have come out of it and um there's something that we did with Age UK and we're looking to do it again in April where Fulham very kindly gave us some complimentary tickets and we were able to get a minibus of females, some of whom used to go to football with their husbands, the husbands have passed away or they've, you, you know, used to go with brothers and dads um, and they absolutely loved it. Um, so it's it's really giving people who don't normally get the opportunity who are unsure about going to football just that opportunity to come along and support Fulham. Amazing, amazing work that um, you're doing and uh, so needed as well. I, I think um, such a gap that, that wasn't there um, and what wasn't being fulfilled before. So, yeah, thank you to, to yourself, Sarah, and, uh, and all the other um women on the board who are just doing an amazing job for the uh, for the Fulham Lilies. So let's discuss uh, plans then for this Sunday. It's International Women's Day today as we record. Uh, it'll be yesterday by the time that um, you listen to this. And in conjunction with that date, um, you've kind of earmarked the Arsenal game as a particularly special day for the Fulham Lilies to put on lots of different uh, initiatives. So uh, what can uh, what can we expect? Yeah, so um, we are meeting at the Tea House in Bishop's Park and we'll be there from 12.30 on Sunday. So come along and say hello. Just if you want to find out a little bit more about us, all of the board members are all going to be there. And then at 1.30, we're all going to walk to the ground together. Um, one of the board members, uh, Amelia Armstrong, is also the Her Game 2 ambassador for Fulham. And as we saw at Brentford on Monday night, the Fulham players will be warming up in Her Game 2 t-shirts. Um, as we, as I was saying, the club have been really supportive. Um, and Tim Ream did an interview with Amelia earlier on in the season, and he's very supportive of everything that we do. 
There are going to be flag bearers, which are all going to be girls from the academy. The ball assistants um, are going to be uh, female. There may be some males because as we found out, uh, ball assistants or ball boys, as a lot of people will recall them, yeah. um, it's, it's actually when you're in the Premier League, it's a tough job. There's a lot of pressure um, about you know, throwing the ball to the right person at the right time. So we, we found out a lot about what ball assistants do. Um, there are going to be female mascots walking out onto the pitch with the players. Um, there's going to be articles about the female workers at Fulham. Um, Eleanor Rowland became Fulham's first female director in September last year. She set up a women's group within the club for women who work within the club. And we work very closely with Eleanor on lots of different initiatives. So we're really trying to encourage women, not just to come and support the team, but also to look at football as a career. Um, and it is something that, you know, they can get involved in. And then for us, the highlight of the day is going to be the Forever Fulham um, Award. And it's also worked very well that we're playing Arsenal because Rachel Yankee will be receiving the award. And she, of course, very famously played for Fulham, Arsenal and England. Um, we put that on our wish list from day one that we wanted Rachel to receive a Forever Fulham um, Award. And it's great that this is happening this weekend and she's the first female recipient. That is fantastic. I mean, so much uh, packed into um, one day. And yeah, Rachel, fully deserving of the Forever Fulham Award. There's been a, a couple of players, let's be honest, in uh, in recent um, months that maybe are we stretching the Forever Fulham Award and whether they're deserving of it. But Rachel, 100%, I mean, has won... Um, more trophies than any male player um, at Fulham, which isn't hard because you only have to win one um, <laughs> in order to uh, achieve achieve that. So yeah, fully, fully um, deserving. And Sarah as well, I guess um, the increased profile of the Fulham women's team, while still like a lot of work to do, it's still very far from being um, the le like levels that some WSL clubs get within their own clubs um, has been particularly pleasing as well, particularly that match at Craven Cottage um, that the Fulham women played against Wimbledon. That must have been um, great for, for, for you to see. Yeah, it was similar to the Rachel Yankee thing. That, again, was very high up on our list when uh, when we first formed, is that we wanted to make sure that the women got to play a game at Craven Cottage this season. And obviously, because of the World Cup break, it, it meant that it, it could happen. And for the fans and for even the players, the players absolutely loved it. And they get an average gate of about 60 um, down at Motsma Park or at some of their away games. So for them to be able to play in front of just over 3,000 people, it was absolutely tremendous. The atmosphere was great. Um, the, the, the songs were being sung when uh, we scored. The goal was celebrated like a full of, like Metro had just scored against Brentford in the 93rd minute. It, it, you know, it was absolutely brilliant to, to see. And, um, speaking to sort of uh, Edie Kelly and Mary Southgate, they now seeing girls that are coming up to them when, when they go out and about and are, and are sort of saying that they're being inspired by these players to, to sort of take up football. And it's, it's great to think when I was at school, we won't say how long ago that was, but when I was at school, <laughs> it wasn't even an option. 
Uh, I actually took my school out on strike when I was eight because they wouldn't let us play football. Um, and I managed to get it in- reinstated. But then once you come to secondary school, that's it. So it's also amazing today that we've seen that the government have committed that schools will now offer at least two hours of PE a week and girls will be given the opportunity to play football. Um, and it's, it is through work that we're doing with the Lilies that the Fulham women are doing as well. I think it's it's one of those things where you're looking at role models and I think it's like you kind of hit a, du- a double pronged strand here in so many, in many ways, Sarah, because you know, you're looking at this current team and and obviously Mary Southgate as a captain and lifelong Fulham fan is a kind of lovely kind of beacon of hope in the middle of all of this in that, you know, there is that kind of link between fans and the current club. But you're also then seeing players coming through and, and obviously we've all seen Tia Foreman's sort of goal of the season competition on her own at this point. But I mean, I would kind of argue and or not argue, I would ask what, what the kind of future is, because obviously Rachel Yankee as a kind of person for this exact game is, is amazing. And obviously it's fully deserving of this award, but that team had so many or other teams over those years where Fulham were winning trophies regularly. I remember watching playing Doncaster Bells in all of those finals. But, you know, the, the names that kind of ring out from from those kind of times and Katie Chapman and Marianne Spacey, Rachel Unit, Marianne Petson. I remember the excitement when she came in at the time. And, you know, that that feels like a long time ago, but, it, it, you know, it, and things have changed so much in various ways. But that was a kind of trailblazing side. Are there kind of ideals of of making sure that those players are, are kind of given the same kind of recognition with, with awards in the future? It, it's something um, that, that we are very passionate about. If um, we've, we've done a lot of research around the, the Fulham team of the 2000s, you know, we were the first professional team in Europe. Al Fayed was so forward thinking. He went out to the States. He saw the 99 Women's World Cup and he came back and he wanted to create the, the same thing. And it was it's just for, for us, it really saddens us that. There's not much known about it. People don't realise the great players that came and, and played for Fulham and that we were winning everything. And I've spoken to lots of other um, supporters from other teams and, and they sort of said that, you know, everyone was a bit jealous of Fulham because no one else could quite get their act together to do what we were doing. And it, it is something that for us as Lilies, we really want to, people to be aware of you know, the great history and heritage that the Fulham ladies, as they as they were then, um, you know, brought to the club. They were absolutely fantastic. It was amazing. You, you know, we were winning everything. So people don't even realise that we used to have a women's team. That, you know, so we really need to, to sort of sing and shout about it. But also we need to make sure they are recognised for what they did for the club and for women's football. Yeah. Um, and Sarah, if anyone's uh, listening to this, um, maybe weren't aware of the Fulham Lilies and would like to either get in contact or find out more about um, what you're doing, uh, what's the best way for people to uh, to get in touch? Um, we're on most socials. So easiest is probably Twitter, uh, Fulham Lilies. We're on Instagram, again, Fulham Lilies and Facebook. And if you want to email us to find out more information, it's Fulham Lilies at gmail.com. 
Great. And uh, whilst I'm here as well, uh, being asked to mention that uh, on Sunday, it is also uh, the Disability uh, Match Day March uh, as part of the Fulham Foundation. Uh, there's going to be a walk uh, along the Thames path uh, to Hammersmith Bridge, across the bridge, and um, back down the Putney side of the Thames to Putney Bridge uh, through Bishop's Park with the ground finish at uh, Craven Cottage, uh, raising money for the uh, the Fulham Foundation. Um, if you want to uh, sign up, then all the details are on the uh, foundation website and I know that uh, your support would be uh, extremely appreciated if you're able to go along to that. Right, let's do some emails and a quick round of This Will Catch On uh, before we finish today. Uh, Sarah, are you aware of This Will Catch On? Are you uh, are you braced for the nonsense <laughs> that is This Will Catch On? Yes, yeah, I am braced and ready to go. <laughs> all right, well, we'll do some um, emails uh, first of all. Um, Quite a few on the issue of tickets for the Man United game, um, which uh, a lot of people were talking about uh, yesterday um, on Twitter. It seems like Fulham have taken an allocation of 3,000 out of the possible 9,000 that Fulham can take for the quarterfinal at Old Trafford. Uh, the ticket prices are pretty eye-watering, um, anywhere from £45 to £55 for a ticket in that away end uh, for, for adults. Makes the Leeds game look positively good value, um, which is quite something. Um, Tom Burrows emailed saying, um, I understand there's issues for clubs who ask for too many and don't sell them. Otherwise, all clubs would ask for the full allocation. I also don't know exactly how many we potentially could get to Old Trafford. My question is, though, why set it low and then make it difficult to get tickets until less than a week before the game for non-season ticket holders? Why not, why not go slightly higher and open it up to the rest of us earlier? If these do sell out before getting to non-season ticket holders or there's very few left and the club has messed this up massively I'd like to think there's fairly big demand for tickets for a quarterfinal at Old Trafford I mean Jack I guess there's kind of two points to this thing is I guess there's the ticket prices which are as we learned in the Leeds game are set by the home team but agreed normally by the away team and then secondly the allocation that Fulham have taken which is 3,000 now I'm not gonna lie I I feel like I'm not sure even 3,000, uh, we're going to easily sell that. Considering how tough it is to get there, the trains st are still not on sale for this match. Um, they don't go on sale, I think, till the 10th. Um, plus the fact it's late on a Sunday and the ticket prices. I don't know. I feel like actually I'm not 100% sure what the right call on this is, but it's such a shame that for such a big match that maybe we couldn't found a way to, to take a massive allocation up there. Yeah, I mean, look, this is the price that Manchester United set for the last two rounds, so I'm not wildly surprised by it. I also, at the time, said that I wasn't going to let Fulham off the hook by blaming Leeds when it came to the prices at the cottage. So I think to then turn around and say that this is Fulham's fault on, on ticket prices here is probably a little bit unfair of me. So uh, I'm going to stick to the fact that this is this seems to be United's price. And, and and that's where they've stuck it. So, look, I'm, as you know, I, I didn't go to that Leeds game because I didn't believe the pricing was fair. Um, but I don't think this one can be laid at Fulham's door quite as much. So I, I, I'm going to maybe just abstain from from being overly critical on that one. I mean, I don't think there should be a price for a ticket anywhere, full stop. But Well, I guess you can criticise United, just like you criticised Fulham. I can criticise United and say that I, I don't think this should be the price of a, a football ticket, full stop. Um, 
but this isn't a Manchester United podcast and I'd be very surprised if any of the higher ups of Manchester United are listening to this. So I'm not sure it's going to make all that much of a difference. Um, so now the, Joel Glazer sometimes tunes into the Bullimish podcast. <laughs> just wants, wants to know what's going on, does he? Um, he's got loads of time in his hands now. Maybe he'll yeah. feed the message back. Um, yeah, look, so I, I think that's on Man United. I don't agree with it, but that's on Man United. And in terms of allocation, it feels a little bit hard to kind of work it out. I, it, it does also speak to the idea that Fulham, Fulham's kind of picking up a, the lowest possible, I think, allocation. I'm not sure you can take less than 3,000 at Old Trafford um, because they're wary of buying too many and not selling them it is a little bit of a misnomer in some ways. You'd imagine that Fulham would want to have the biggest possible support there and therefore, not if they're not, you know, not convincing they're going to take 9,000 to Old Trafford, fine, whatever. I appreciate that. But it does feel like it's a difficult one. I, I think the point in the question that's actually the most relevant is the idea of could you ask for 3,000, open them up real quick, and then if they sell out, ask for a further allocation. We've seen this done in the past where allocations have been increased after demand has been there. So the fact that it's going to take such a while for it to get all the way down through the season ticket points, I think is maybe the error here. I think actually if you could quicken those up, maybe double the bands or something to get them through in four days rather than eight. Um, and so that, that people could get to, you know, it gets to a, a place where people are looking to buy them whoever is is available i think that's probably the the strategy i would have gone down if i was in charge of this and tried to to make sure that as many supporters as possible because there'll be people coming from from various places not just from london but obviously from overseas as well and, and from around the rest of the country who will be looking at these and going yeah maybe i could get to old trafford you know i'm sure there'll be plenty of fulham fans based around that manchester area but also uh, you know across the pond in ireland who where it's quite easy to get back to you know to, to Manchester and, and easy to fly in there directly I'd imagine there'd be some around Liverpool there'd be some in Scotland all of which are places you can get to Manchester relatively easily from and those people might not necessarily be season ticket holders because they won't be able to get to London every second week to to be at the cottage so in order to try and maximize the potential attendance I think it would have been a good idea to have opened up these bands quicker um but I'm I'm sadly unsurprised by failings at administrative level at the club on a regular basis these days. I guess my thing is you, I look, I just look at the numbers again, similar to the Leeds game. And um, I think if Fulham wanted to have the biggest support there possible, there is ways and means, right? Fulham earn 1.5 million from the gate receipts on this. 1.5 million because we take 50%, 200,000 then for being on the telly. The cost of subsidizing the 3,000 tickets down to 30 quid to make it more appealing for Fulham fans to go up would be 45,000. You're telling me that's not a, not, not a bad investment to, in order to get a great atmosphere of a big band of Fulham fans up there to, to support the lads. But as, as we've said time and time again, Let's not be massively surprised that Fulham are just taking the sensible business decision here and not like um, the the decision for the fans. Um, Sarah, what was your thoughts on uh, on everything uh, to do with the tickets at Old Trafford? Yeah, I think. I mean, you you sort of mentioned it at the beginning. I think Fulham have looked and thought it's it's half four on a Sunday. It's on the TV. It's forty five pounds. There's a train strike the day before, which means that quite possibly there'll be chaos on the trains on the Sunday anyway. And 
they think after the amount of people who complained and who boycotted the Leeds game because of the, the cost of tickets, maybe they're going to be in a similar situation where people will think, I'm not going to bother. I think rather than maybe reducing the price of the tickets, I think transport's going to be the biggest issue, you know, getting up, they're getting back. So maybe I know in the past they've offered free coach travel and what has happened is because it's free, people just haven't bothered turning up. So Fulham have booked and paid for coaches and people haven't turned up. So, you know, they've had to pay that out. But at least, you know, five are for kids, ten are for an adult. You know, that might have helped, um, I think, to do something like that. But I I do think sort of logistically it's going to be a bit of a nightmare, which is maybe why Fulham have looked at that. Um, Also, if you think about it, if we do take... We don't know what the next allocation would be. So if Man United say it's either 3,000 or 6,000, we're not going to sell 6,000. And that impacts us because obviously if Man United sell that 6,000, which they will, then we get 50% of that. But if there are empty seats, which if we took 6,000, there could be, we're not going to get any money from that. So again, because of the way that Fulham is now very much a business model, They've probably looked at looked at it that way. Yeah, I I don't know actually for once what the right answer is on how many tickets they should have taken. I know there's a lot of people that are up for this that maybe that is their only away game of the season or whatever, and that, and that is fair enough. I think like a cup quarterfinal at Old Trafford brings out maybe some people. You know, even my dad, he doesn't really come to away games, and suddenly was like, oh, should we go to Old Trafford for the quarterfinal? It kind of sometimes makes some people. Um, think okay this is going to be my big day of of the season but I don't actually know what the right answer is there and I think even if we got managed to get 3,000 at this late notice up to Manchester given everything that's going on I think it'd be quite an achievement but I can see how it's frustrating there probably would have been ways but I think we know that Fulham will normally just take the easiest most profitable option um, if they have the choice um Sticking on ticket prices, we've got two emails that are almost the exact same email, so much so that I actually um, thought that they were by the same person um, and they were almost sent on the same day as well. So one is by Tyler Rains, The next is by James Freeborn. Um, I'm going to read Tyler's email, but basically James's is the same. So I'm sorry to you, James. Um, he says, I have a genuine question from what might be a naive American perspective. The long, long and short of it, I don't get the ticketing issue. I understand that football is a family affair and keeping pricing low will help lead generations to come falling in love with the game. However, I just don't get the stick about a £40 ticket. Maybe it's my Americanism that's to blame, as there isn't a great one-to-one comparison in the States when it comes to sport. I was still curious to compare, so looked up tickets to an NBA game and found one game ticket prices for a season. Season. Um, it could be because there's a cultural divide, um, but there is never complaints about tickets to NBA games and kids still fall in love with sport and their favorite team. Maybe there is a television accessibility aspect to it. Most NBA games are available through either national or regional coverage. I'm no means complaining that you discuss it and take a stand when you feel ticketing is outrageous, just looking for some insight. We want the club to go and spend money to keep us progressing up the pyramid, but to do so, we have to manage FFP and profiting elsewhere will help that. He says at the end, I'm probably just a jaded American and feel free to slate me and my country if that is the case. And that's thanks from Tyler. So Jack... It's very interesting. We get this quite a lot whenever we talk about ticketing. I think about 20% of our audience is American. Um, so, and and quite often, you know, you compare these prices to try and go to an NFL game. And I mean, it's, we're, we're there on different planets. Um, so what's your thought on what Tyler says? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the major difference for me is that within the professional sports communities in America, they are very much and have always been profit-driven businesses. There, there, there feels like there's a sense that that's the differentiation from from where I'm standing. And, and look, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm the, the world's expert on this. So I, this, this could be coming from a place of, of kind of limited understanding. But from that, it's always kind of felt like there's that element of, you know, profit and, and private business that's more prevalent, I think, in the States than perhaps is in the UK. And I think that the difference is that football clubs here were created as pillars of community, not as kind of necessarily just being an entertainment franchise. And and that's the difference. I think you also, the idea of a club picking up like Wimbledon and moving to Milton Keynes is probably also not at huge odds with the American ethic but look at the you know the riot and protests that it connected here and the fact that clubs move around the country that franchises can switch cities i don't think there's necessarily a, a complete comparison because i think they're set up to do different things i think that sporting franchises in the us are far more seen as entertainment that you can pay for and that yes might be part of you uh, as something that you you buy into but they are very much first and foremost entertainment Whereas I think that with football clubs, especially ones that have been handed down from generation to generation here, there is an element that this football club belongs in some way far more to the fan base than it does to the owners and, and kind of always will do. And, and so that's, I think, where the difference in what this stands for comes in. And I think that then bleeds into the ticket prices debate. But I also think we're in an era, as we said just beforehand, where football clubs becoming business models and, and the fact that you know, MK Dons exist and RB Leipzig exist and TSG Hoffenheim exist, I think is probably testament to the fact that the, the face of football has changed and the Premier League ideal has actually driven a lot of this to a, the point where people are, are failing to compete. But that's where I think the differentiation comes from. I don't think it's necessarily an issue. I just think they're two different things set up to do serve different purposes one has not been maybe pulled away from its original purpose as a pillar of community whereas the other has yeah um sarah anything on this yeah i think i mean it's it's interesting but there's for, for me I've, I've got um some american friends and we often have conversations about this and in in america the owners are the owners they own whatever it is whether it's basketball or baseball for us I don't believe that the Khans own Fulham. They are the current custodians mm. of Fulham. It is our club. And I think that's very much the the difference between the American market and the the English market is that Fulham is our club. You know, we are, and as Jack said, for generations, you know, I'm a third generation Fulham supporter and everyone else we, we speak to, you just mentioned it, Sammy, your dad goes, you know, it's very much family and it is our club. Whereas in America, they're very much owners. They make the decision and it's all around entertainment. And for me, another reason why I don't think the American sport is as popular as ours is they don't have the jeopardy within their sport that we do. They don't have promotions and relegations. You know, you, you, you look at some like the Man City, you know, falling right the way down the league, coming all the way back up again. We're seeing what, you know, they're trying to do over at Wrexham. You don't have that in America. They are very much, they're there and they just entertain. 
and that's they just entertain and entertain, provide that entertainment, and that you don't have the connection that we as football supporters have in the UK. I think it's really interesting, actually, recently, and and, and if anyone's watching documentaries uh, on YouTube or whatever, the documentary about the crew or Columbus crew being potentially moved away from Columbus um, by the man who's currently now in charge of, of Austin uh, and the kind of fight to save Columbus from moving away from the town is quite antithetical, I think, to the idea of what American sports have been for so long. And actually, I think there's an element of, of our football culture pervading that in that there's like, hang on, this belongs to this town. This doesn't belong to a man who owns. And the fact that there was a fight to save them, I think, is something that's been almost imported from British or European football yeah. culture. And actually, the, the idea that that's starting to happen, I think, in working both ways, probably suggests that there is more to this than, than maybe meets the eye. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that that had happened of late, and therefore there is this sense that it doesn't belong to the ownership, it belongs to the fans in that exact regard. And so maybe an element of that is starting to pervade within at least MLS. Yeah. I just think there's such cultural differences as well. Like whilst there's so many similarities between ourselves and America or Europeans in America, I mean, look, Germany would look at what Fulham and Fulham fans are complaining about with their ticket price and be like, Oh, you call that a protest? Like that's, I mean, like there's, there's such massive cultural differences. You only have to go to America and suddenly you realize the tipping culture over there. Like that to us is completely alien, like the way that you guys tip, but it's your culture. And, and it just, it's very hard to explain. Um, and it, it, it roots down to football being a working class sport first and foremost, that was generally a very cheap, affordable way of entertaining yourselves on the weekend. It wasn't the West end. It wasn't going to the ballet. It was just going to football for a couple of quid. And that still exists down lower down the pyramid. If I want to go watch Godalming town, it's going to cost me three quid. It's a cheap way of, it's a cheap form of entertainment. Now that has changed so much, but still that kind of like, feeling and that gauge of what going to a football match is worth is still kind of there deep down in our soul. And we know that £46 for an away game to sit in the corner at Old Trafford and get a, a warm carling at half time doesn't feel like a huge amount of value for money. But it's a really interesting point and I get it a lot from the Americans. So I'm glad we've had a chance to answer it. Um, one more, more point, really. But um, answering a question from a recent Thursday pod, this is from Tom. Uh, we talked about Premier League doubles. Um, and uh, sadly, we asked if we could do the double over Brentford, uh, to which the answer was a big fat no. Um, but we asked in the podcast, um, what was the record of Premier League doubles that Fulham have achieved? We've got two so far this season, Forrest and uh, Brighton. Um, the answer was four. Embarrassingly, Tom found the answer on a Fulhamish article. And I hadn't realised... <laughs> So to Will Gardner, who wrote the article, when was Fulham's last Premier League double? And at the bottom, he gives what the answer was, which was four. I apologise that I had not thoroughly uh, inspected your answer and got the answer. So we need two more doubles in order to match the record. And that's from the 11-12 season. Uh, Liverpool, QPR, Wigan and Bolton were the double victims that season. So can Fulham uh, go one better this year? I think we still can um, by my calculation. Right. A few rounds of this will catch on before we finish. Uh, there's some fantastic ones today. Uh, let's go first of all to 
Lex Janes. He says, hello, Fulhamish. Love the podcast. This hit me like a thunderbolt whilst reveling in uh, this morning's snatch and grab madness at Brighton. Okay, it's been a, a couple of weeks since he sent this one. Maybe at least the chorus will catch on. Uh, extension ASAP, please, for Marco Silva. I don't know what the song is to this. I don't know if Lex just made it up in his own head. Jack, uh, sometimes you're good at identifying the song. I uh, I did listen to it and tried to work it out, but I wasn't sure. So here we go. This is Lex's effort for Marco Silva. The cons were sad and lost. Couldn't seem to find a boss to end the yo-yo. <laughs> Till they called the best mate of Louise Bo. Marco from Estoril, looking for a team to build, goes on Shot's big boat and says my way could make this team float. Now when Prim Clubs come to our home, they hear a mighty roar. Let's go, Marco Silva's army brings fear into that lot. Let's go, Marco Silva's army knows Brentford is tin pot. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't think that he's made that up. I think that's that's a tune that I recognise. I can't place it for love nor money. I think it, it might. It sounds like it might be a country song or something. I think maybe that's his accent might be putting that in. But it, yeah, it sounds like a country song or it something might be like from that. A musical. Yeah. It yeah. felt like a lullaby. I almost felt like I was. Uh, <laughs> if I'd have sat back with a, a chamomile tea, I might have. Uh, I might have fallen <laughs> asleep. <laughs> I liked it. I enjoyed myself. Uh, There's some nice references in there. Yeah, I enjoyed a bit about Marco going on a boat. That was fun. Um, and I and anything that says Brent for the tin pot. It's going to go down yeah. well. Yeah, I'm in. Sold. I, I don't think it's going to catch on, but I had a good time nonetheless. There was lots of buzz phrases in there. Right, next one from Carl Beery. This is a really nice email. He says, hello, Fulhamish friends. Greetings from Detroit. Uh, I've got a quick little backstory before my this will catch on. Uh, I grew up not following soccer too closely, other than every four years, paying a tiny bit of attention every four years to the World Cup. My interest in the US men's national team began growing in 2010 and even more so in 2014. Uh, We don't talk about 2018. Uh, In 2018, he moved in with a buddy of mine and he was a huge Liverpool. And at the time, he said he had no interest in the club game. I really wanted to get into it, but just didn't want to pick a bandwagon team. So I did some research and wanted some sort of American connection. I decided Fulham beat Villa in the promotion final, I would start following them in the Prem. And I'm so glad I did. I immediately discovered the Fulhamish podcast for the next season. I've been a devout listener ever since. I stuck with the Whites through the ups and downs of the last few seasons. I I thoroughly enjoy listening to you guys a couple of times a week. I've been really able to feel a connection to the club through you all. And it makes the 7.30am wake up calls well worth it. I just want to say thanks for that. I dream of getting to the cottage one day. One of my favourite parts of following the Premier League is the supporters. I so wish American sports would sing songs the way you do. I've written a few little ditties in my head over the past few years, but I've got the worst singing voice in the world. Willie Ann's banger last weekend finally gave me the courage to send one in. So please enjoy my Willie Ann creation to the tune of Doa Ditty Ditty by Manfred Mann. Um, I just realized I blabbered on entirely too long and understand if you don't feel like reading that whole mess on the show. Well, I did. Carl B in Detroit. Thank you very much. That's great. Um, 
you might not know the song instantly when I said it, but this is a very popular chant at the moment. Um, a lot of clubs have adapted this. So actually, I think, I think there might be something here. There he goes, just a running down the wing, singing do a diddy willy undiddy do, taking the full um to Europa League. Do a diddy willy undiddy do. He looks good, he looks fine, he looks good, he looks fine when he plays in black and white. There he goes, just a running down the wing, singing do a diddy willy undiddy do, taking the Fulham to Europa League, singing do a diddy willy undiddy do. He looks good, looks good. He looks fine, looks fine. He looks good, he looks fine when he plays in black and white. I like it. Oh, I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was um, something. Um, no, I, I, I think maybe it's annoying that that Brentford is singing it on Monday night. Not that version of it, obviously. Um, oh yeah, but every club singing it. I when I went to um, I went to England, Wales, and all the England fans. Um, I can't remember who they sing that song for. Dom will correct me when he hears this. But um, Brentford was singing get... it for Kevin Sharder. Uh, well, you know. Everyone sings, "Oh, it's super Fulham!" Like, yeah. no, no, no. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that they made it up. I mean, after they made up every other song in football yeah. history, um, I'm, 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 I wouldn't be surprised, um, considering they wrote "Hey Jude." Beatles covered it, didn't you? Um, but it's, yes, um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think maybe that's why it's playing with me. Look, there's something in there, and I agree with you. Everyone's singing at the moment, so uh, shout out, Carl. Yeah, and Lillian does look good in black and white, going down the wing. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and Willian, you know, I mean, he's better than just the classic Willian stuff. So I like it. Yeah. Right, this one we've gone on far too long, but I've got one more. If you guys will uh, allow me, you will recognise this one if you're a long-standing listener. So this will catch on. But it's a rework. I love that we're getting to this stage, and it's brilliant. Does the name Ishan Mahabir ring any bells? Oh Jack? yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Let's go. He says, "Hi team, long time in the works. Thankfully, Tim Ream is still as prolific as ever. <laughs> Decided to get onto the keys myself and give it more of a sing. Here's to the big American, the full reworked version of We Dream of Ream. Thanks for all the work on the pod. Um, you know how like Empire State of Mind, the song by Jay Z, has the V has the kind of the second version that Alicia Keys did on the piano. Yeah, we've got a rework. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, think that, but for Dream of Ream. Oh, okay." We dream of Remo, what a guy He's gonna bring us all the glory We dream of Reem and we don't mind We kind of like you're from Missouri You're 34, still going strong You are the pride of Fulham fandom we know Fulham's where you belong So I guess we'll overlook the man bun We beat the Blues that Wednesday night So they spent 300 million 
and they came back and were still shy. <laughs> or maybe we just had to breathe. I'm honestly tearing up. Here. We'll admit that we were scared. Scott Parker made us all so brittle. Wasn't even that good. <laughs> well, look who's Shimble. laughing now. It's never over till it's over. You start each game and make us proud. You'll never be Pep Guardiola. We had a dream, Tim Ream would be so different under Marco Silva now he don't concede <laughs> and maybe we'll win the Premier League yeah. my god I, I want to grab a flag and start a revolution now with Tim oh. Reid as our leader <laughs> I, I love that Ishan went he went hmm He's like, I definitely was the best at this. I definitely had the the number one song. And then everyone went a bit mad for John's one. And he's come back and be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Give me back the top of my chart. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, forever number one. That is unbelievable. My guy. What a voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Unreal. Unreal. I mean, Let's get crescendo and everything. I was there. If we, you, know, you know teams used to record an FA Cup final song? Yeah. If we get there, <laughs> all the lads. <laughs> we're, stuck for cho- we're stuck for choice. We could do an album out no, of the no, songs no, that we've no, got. No, no. All the, I want all the lads in a room singing that. That's, that's what I'm after. Oh. But, you know, take them down to that huge studio up in North London. Not the BBC one, the one that they had to move out of. Blur moved out of it to, to record. Uh, you know, when Fat Les did Vindaloo, they recorded that um, in the BBC studios. Right. Do you mean Made of Ale? That was at Made of Ale. Right. And then they moved out of that because they needed a full orchestra for when they did Jerusalem two years later. <laughs> so that's the studio I want. <laughs> As we do a full version. Um, a full orchestral version of We Dream yeah. of Ream. Yeah. Me and Cooper will, will get on to transcribing. <laughs> hey. I don't forget me. Brilliant. All right. Yeah. Absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. <laughs> it Great. was amazing. Oh, wow. Ishan, thank you so much. I actually like, chose not to listen to half of it beforehand because I wanted to save myself to listen on the pod. At the time, um, do you remember? We could, we, I was like, I want the rest of it. It yes. has been delivered in a, a gift wrapped. Ishan, my guy. Amazing. Absolutely incredible. And that'll do for the podcast today. Uh, thank you for listening. And thank you to my guest, Jack Collins. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Sammy. I appreciate it as always. Sarah, thank you so much for jumping in. It's been fantastic um, to have you on. Best of luck with everything that's happening on uh, on Sunday. And uh, please continue to do all the great work for the Fulham Lilies. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely loved it. What all a right. full debut. We haven't seen a full debut like that since Man of Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> 
I will take that. It was amazing. Incredible. Incredible. Right. Uh, We will be back on Monday reviewing the Arsenal game. Uh, Coops is going to be looking after that pod. And then the Thursday club will return this time next week, looking ahead to that big Man United game in the FA Cup. Have a wonderful weekend. Whatever you're doing, if you're heading to the game, enjoy for watching it back at home. Enjoy that too. And we will see you on the flip. Come on, you whites. You whites.